as adults, Mondays can be hard for us, right? Like that's not just a kid problem, but giving kids the tools to talk about what those feelings are and, and respecting and owning the fact that those feelings are real teaches them about how to deal with it when they're older. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, let's dive right in with episode 71, in which I interview Sivan Hong. Sivan's career spans over two decades in several industries and professions, including holding esteemed positions as a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and a former partner at the Bridgespan Group. Today, Sivan authors and illustrates the children's book series, The Super Fun Day Books, which include Benny J and the Horrible Halloween, George J and the Miserable Monday, and Emily D and the Fearful First Day. Sivan's inspiring books focus on neurodiverse children who overcome their challenges with perseverance and bravery. And a big congratulations to Sivan because George J and the Miserable Monday recently hit number one on Amazon in its genre. We talk all about parenting neurodiverse kids while being neurodiverse moms, and we also discuss some of the unique difficulties faced by ADHD women when it comes to balancing their careers and motherhood. And before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. I'll be telling you a little bit more about Magic Mind later in the episode, so stay tuned. I've interviewed quite a lot of women who had came to their diagnosis through their children. So I'm curious about that. But I also am fascinated about the fact that you wrote your books before your diagnosis, right? Like <laughs> you're sort of like, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. Uh, but let's start with, uh, so you have two sons who were di- one of them, they're both neurodiverse. So let's, uh, usually I ask kind of what made you first think you had ADHD and what led to your diagnosis. But I feel like you kind of backed into yours, um, after doing so much. So let's talk about kind of what made you, um, really get interested, I guess, in neurodiversity and as, as a topic for children's books. <laughs> So yes, um, <laughs> all of that, all of that, there's a question in there my, somewhere. There is. And I, I found it. Um, my eldest son, he's 10, um, was diagnosed with autism around two. And, um, at the time I knew nothing about autism, but I had known that there was something developmentally different about this child pretty early on. And he was my first. Um, and I still had that like mommy instinct that said to me, something is different. Um, and I took him to therapist after therapist after therapist to try to find out what was going on. And, and oftentimes they said to me, he's just a gifted kid. It's okay. And you know, in your gut that that's just not right. Like, it's nice that you think I want to hear that, but that's not right. And finally we got him 
diagnosed with autism um, and what used to be Asperger's. And I recognized that at that point, we had to do a lot of work um, to help him get on the path that he needed to be on. Um, and so I left my job and, um, and I just did what people with ADHD do. And I hyper-focused on this idea that I needed to know everything. I needed to talk to everybody. And, and, and I just went in like, I just dove into it. And I know there, there's kind of two different kinds of parents when their kids get a diagnosis. One like me, who's like, I need to know everything. I need to do everything. I need to try everything. And then the ones who put their heads in the sand and are like, I don't want this to be happening. I'm not that kind of personality. And so in doing so, um, I realized how plastic the brain is when they're two. And how much I could do if I really was able to work with him on getting him more comfortable to be around kids. He had all of these crazy spikes um, where um, you could give him a date and say, you'd say November 18th. And he would say, oh, well, in 2075, that's a Tuesday. And he'd be right. Right. Like he had this brain that I couldn't understand but my husband and I stepped back and we're like, we could have this really, really smart, eccentric child who can't survive in the world, but could graduate Harvard when he was 12. Or we could have a kid who had a chance at a somewhat normal and happier life. And we chose B. And so instead of trying to work on those kinds of spikes, we tried to normalize his brain. And, and I say this um, because that's a hard thing to talk about, right? Like I wanted him to be able to be comfortable in a room full of kids and 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 never take away who he is as a person, never take away the quirkiness that makes him who he is, but still be able to function independently in society. And that's what we did. Like we worked tremendously hard his entire life was going to therapy and for us working on things with him. And he's gotten to the point where he has friends and he can function in school. And he doesn't now know November 18th and some random year is gonna be a Tuesday because who needs to know that? But he also knows about his autism. And we talked about it with him from day one. We called it his special brain and that he saw the world differently than other people did. And he would tell people about his autism. And when he actually started to make friends, he would share this with them, even though, you know, as kindergartners, they don't really understand what that means. Um, and with his autism diagnosis, I started to pick up on the ADHD. And people had told us early on that there's that no, no, he doesn't have ADHD. It's just autism. And again, like the more you dive into it, the more you know your kid, like this isn't just the autism. There's something else going on. And I got him diagnosed with the ADHD in second grade. And it's interesting because there it is a Venn diagram. There are overlapping pieces to ADHD and to autism. And I keep thinking about neurodiversity as this spectrum that's not just the autism spectrum and the ADHD spectrum, but none of our brains are wired the same way. And so 
he got this ADHD diagnosis. And then I started to see it in my younger son. And I was like, you know, I know what this is. I've seen this movie before. And we were able to get him diagnosed in first grade. Um, and the whole time my conversations with those kids have been, this is really cool. You have this different brain. It makes you see the world differently. Um, and, and my first grader once said to me, he's like, I'm not going to tell any of my friends I have ADHD because I don't want to brag. And I'm like, that's right. That's what we want. Like, this is something to be proud of. And everybody kept saying that this is genetic. And I'd always say to my husband, I'm like, where did all this come from? Who could have possibly had this? And he would laugh at me, but not say anything. And so finally, I was like, it dawned on me. I'm like, wait a minute, all of these characteristics that I'm seeing in my children, I can see in myself. And it never crossed my mind. And so I talked to my kids about it. And for my 47th birthday, wait, how old am I now? Maybe my 48th birthday. Sorry. This is not the the way my brain works. Um, I told my husband, I wanted to get a diagnosis. I wanted to do a full neuropsych for my birthday. And that's because I wanted the actual diagnosis. And I went in and I did it. And the doctor is like, yes, of course you have ADHD. Like it wasn't even close. And I came home and I told my husband and he starts laughing and he's like, I could have told you this from our first date. I'm like, I know, but now it's like, it's official. It's like, I can literally say, this is why all of this stuff happened. And I've heard women on your podcast talk about what it feels like to actually get the diagnosis and what you go through And I went through this phase of anger and sadness and joy, and it was all happening at the same time um, because it explains so very much. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think, you know, it was funny. I was talking to my kids just this morning in, in kind of mentally preparing for this interview. Um, I was saying like, you know, I've been talking about ADHD basically nonstop in, in our household. Uh, but I didn't come to my diagnosis through my children. Right. So I came to my diagnosis through my therapist and the pandemic. And, um, so, but I do talk a lot about how difficult I, it was growing up and, you know, the, the issues that I had in school and how, you know, I, I do kind of talk about it very openly in the terms of the negatives and the positives. And, and I, neither of them has been formally diagnosed. I have a 10 year old and a 14 year old, but I, you know, I talk about it with them very openly about like, I don't think it's not that I don't think you have ADHD or that you are neurodiverse. I just haven't gotten you diagnosed yet because we are, you know, I'm learning, we're learning, we're dealing, we're, we're coming up with our own kind of lifestyle changes, et cetera. And, um, you know, and I also feel like I want to get it right when I do the diet, you know, when I, I don't want to just go through the school district because like neither of my kids is terribly physically hyperactive. They're not disruptive. They don't have a lot of the stereotypical, um, traits that would get a a kid pulled out of their classroom and, and get them a diagnosis through the school district. Or so like, I, you know, I'm just like, I think, you know, I'm, because I've been learning so much about it. Like I want to be super, I just want to get it right. And so I've been, of course, procrastinating. (laughs) Um, But so I said to, I asked them both individually this morning, you know, I was like, 
do I, you know, when I, what, what do you think? Like, do you feel like ADHD is something that is a gift or do you feel like it is, uh, uh, something terrible, you know, because like, I was worried, I was like, maybe I do paint it in such this terrible picture. What, because I talk about how, uh, you know, living a life undiagnosed and, and being convinced your whole life that you just like something was off and everybody got the manual, but you, and, uh, why can't I do certain things and why am I not trying harder and all of this, you know, I know I'm bright and all of that stuff. And, and they both had very satisfying answers, which was like, you know, my daughter was like, no, no, no. I, you know, you, I think it's, it's, I think you credit it with a lot of the great things in your life. And, you know, I understand that, you know, you wish things had been differently and that's fine. And that you're trying to do right by us, et cetera. And, and my 10 year old was like, I think you're overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was like, it is what it is. You know, it's just a thing. Um, and I, you know, there's parts about it. I like, and there's parts about it that, you know, are probably difficult, but at the end of the day, it just, it is what it is. And I was like, all right, I can live with that. Um, but you know, I, it's suddenly like, I, 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 I get worried that when I talk about ADHD, um, uh, and I talk about the struggles, that so many of us as fate, you know, we, we can't help but talk about, um, some of the shame and, and the grief around not being diagnosed. And then I stop and I'm like, Oh God, am I painting this terrible picture of what a life with ADHD is actually like? And, um, so anyway, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I feel like there's always this part of me that projects my own personal school experience onto what my kids are going to experience, right? Because it's this, this fear that you don't want them to go through the same things that you and I went through, right? That, that self-doubt and that, uh, that inability to understand what you were missing. Um, my, I had, my youngest had a 504 meeting this past week and I didn't sleep for literally weeks. My husband just saw me break down before this meeting. And because I was so nervous that I wouldn't be able to get him the accommodations that I knew he needed. And I didn't want him to have to experience school the way I experienced school. Um, and how important it is for those accommodations to be in place so that he can feel good about who he is as a learner. And it, normally in meetings like that, I'm the one who talks, right? Usually my husband doesn't even come because I'm like, here's what I need. And I, like, I go through it. But in this meeting, I had to have him lead because I remember second grade. I remember failing spelling over and over and over again. And I remember my teacher humiliating me in front of the classroom because I couldn't spell the word socks. And it was like, am I really like this person that can't do these things. And so I project that onto my son's experience, worrying that that's what he is going to go through and how much I want to protect him from that. And I think for me, getting them diagnosed was my way of saying, I'm not going to repeat this experience, even though I hadn't actually been diagnosed yet myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what I'm, what I'm keeping a keen eye on too, which is like, at what point, 
will a formal diagnosis lead to then the accommodations that are needed? But I'm also, yeah, again, like I, I would be the same way with a 504 because I'm also sort of like, I don't really know yet what they need and what they don't need. And um, and so, you know, we're really just, and, and with COVID and so much of the at-home learning um, from last year, like there were a lot of things that I was able to pick up on and help with. And it was such a mindset shift of in terms of, you know, no longer like I've, I think I've talked about this with my son before, right? Like, so he's in fifth grade now and, and he was never a straight A student. My daughter always came home with straight A's and he didn't, he came home with like, you know, twos and threes out of the four chart. And, and I always took that mindset of like, well, you know, not every kid is good in school. Uh, the same thing my parents did, which was like, look, I'm not going to pressure them. I'm not going to become that crazy parent. Who's like, you have to come home with A's. Um, but at the same time, like my mindset totally shifted when I saw how, what he was capable of with the help that he, you know, getting the appropriate help he needed, because I was basically his full-time tutor and assistant last year. And so it really shifted for me where I was like, instead of always just being like, well, I don't want to pressure him to get A's, you know, not everybody has to get A's, um, to like, what do you need to get your A, right? And, and but I, you know, but again, I'm, I'm still worried as a parent where I'm like, I don't want the emphasis to be on getting A's because I don't necessarily think that is right. But I also know how so much of your sense of self and self-esteem is wrapped up in getting the A. So we need to do everything we can to find, figure out what you need to get the A. And I still don't really have an answer. Like, I'm not sure. Um, which way is the best way? I just know that like, I want, I want my children to feel like we have done everything we possibly can to help them succeed as opposed to just being like, oh, well, you're not going to succeed at everything. But I also think you don't succeed at it. Like that's, I don't know. Then I, I go back and forth all the time because I'm like, I don't expect my children to succeed at everything. And I also know that like, when you are neurodiverse, you, you tend to put a lot of pressure on yourself to succeed at everything. And is that because you tend to be good at things or is it because you, we grow up in a society that like pressures you to be consistent at everything? I don't know. For me, the 504 and the accommodations are about leveling the playing field, right? My son being at grade level without a 504 does not level the playing field to me. To me, it's what does he need in place so that he could have the same opportunity to achieve as any of the other kids that are not neurodiverse. And so if that means he needs extra time, okay. If that means he needs headphones in the classroom so he can focus, you know, during the time where it's loud in class, absolutely. But it's, it's not an accommodation in my mind to be like, you have to get straight A's because these kids with ADHD, just like us, are super perfectionists, right? And like, to me, it's not about that. It's, it really is this idea of, you know, putting in the ramp for the wheelchair, right? Like, could the kid make it up the stairs anyway? Sure. Would it be hard and terrible and painful? Yes. So let's put in the ramp, right? Like, that's how I think about it. Um, and it's hard because like you, like this idea of wanting your child to be the best they can be without putting that pressure on them 
because it's there already. Like, how do you scale that back? And how do you have those conversations about, um, about that kind of pressure that they're putting on themselves? Right. And how do you identify the things that are hard for them and the things that are gifts and also identify the stuff that's just hard for them that has nothing to do with the fact that they have ADHD, right? Like it's not everything. It can't be everything. It's here are the things that are you're good at because you're good at. It's not just because you have an ADHD brain. Um, but I, I, because it's not this homogeneous experience for all of us, we don't have that clear path. We don't have that clear guideline that says, here are the steps you need to take in order to level the playing field for your kid. And I think they keep changing on us, right? <laughs> like every day they grow up. And so something else happens to make me change the plan. Um, if they would only just freeze in time, I could do a much better job as a parent. Yeah. And I also sort of feel like, you know, I, I, I look back at my parents and how they kind of dealt with me growing up. And I, you know, I, I can't fault them. I think they did the best they could. And I move on from that. But then there's a part of me that's also like, well, what am I not seeing? You know, where's the ramp? Where's the wheelchair ramp that I'm not putting in? And what could else could I be doing? And it's like, oh, uh, parenting. <laughs> right. Like we can't, I mean, it's one of these things that we're just so hard on ourselves yeah. about. Um, and the neurodiversity piece adds that level of additional complexity to something that's already super complex. Yeah, I agree. This episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. When it comes to maintaining focus and energy throughout the day, I tend to rely heavily on caffeine. But that can backfire when I get over-caffeinated and end up with that jittery, agitated feeling that interferes with my ability to focus and be productive. This is where Magic Mind comes in. Unlike regular energy drinks, Magic Mind contains minimal caffeine, but is loaded up with all natural ingredients like the adaptogens ashwagandha and turmeric, nootropics and matcha, all of which help you keep that focus and motivation throughout the day. As a special offer for listeners of the Women in ADHD podcast, you'll get 20% off your order. Simply head over to magicmind.co slash womenadhd and make sure to enter the code ADHD at checkout. Again, head to magicmind.co slash womenadhd and you'll find that link in the show notes for 20% off your order. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. All right. So let's backtrack a bit because I want to talk about the book. So you you started writing these children books um, during lockdown, right? I did. Um, so when my 
older son was in kindergarten or even earlier than that. And we talked to him about autism and he'd have to wear headphones in the classroom or things like that. Um, there were not a lot or any that I could find children's books with illustrations that showed neurodiverse kids, right? The chairs in the classroom all looked like normal chairs. Kids were not playing with fidget toys. They didn't have headphones on. And he would ask me, you know, why do I have to wear headphones or why do I have to sit in a special seat? And children's books, particularly picture books, are so great at being mirrors for young kids so that they can see themselves, so that they can feel normalized and that their experience is validated. And watching my youngest son, you know, get diagnosed with ADHD over COVID, you know, like over lockdown and all that, I'm like, I need to create a tool for other parents so that this exists right? There's a gap to me that was missing. Um, and with my hyper-focus, I sat there and I wrote two children's books in like the span of a month. And I illustrated them because I'm a control freak and I have to do everything. <laughs> um, but more importantly, I wanted to make sure that the illustrations were not distracting, right? Like, so often with my kids, when I would read a book and they'd have these beautiful illustrations and I would love them, my kids would be like, well, why is that, you know, book on the bookshelf green and completely forget the focus of the story. Um, and so my illustrations are very simple and very clean and only show what need to be shown. The font um, is is dyslexic friendly. So it, it, it doesn't have any curly cues. The spacing is wide. It's really, really simple. Um, so that neurodiverse kids can follow along. Um, and so the books are designed in such a way, um, to appeal to this type of kid so that they can see themselves. And then they're also a great teaching tool for parents to explain, to the other kids in the classroom, why is that kid wearing headphones? Why do they get a special seat? Why do they get to chew gum or have a box of fidgets or whatever accommodations those kids have? Because we're not in the classroom with those kids. It's hard to be able to talk to them about the differences that they are seeing, particularly when kids are so young. And so I've created these books as a tool for neurotypical parents too. That's awesome. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. Um, and, and so after you, so you've written three, are you writing more? I am. I'm working on. Are you making lots of money? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, are you? There's some, there's some article at NPR for a couple of years ago that, that, that pretty much made it seem like an author was super successful if they could pull in $10,000 a year. Um, so if this is the line of work you choose, you, you, you need, like, I keep telling my husband, he's my patron, um, because it's, it takes a long time to bring in a lot of money when you're an author, but I have the same um, issue with podcasting. My husband is right. like, when are you going to, what are my, when do I get to quit my job? I'm like, never just, this is really a full-time <laughs> hobby. <laughs> I call it my midlife crisis. I'm like, it was this or getting a Porsche. So this is much more meaningful, but um, I'm working on the fourth book now. It's, um, it's about the end of school because, you know, 
we always think about the end of the school year. Everyone's so excited about summer. The neurodiverse kids are not good with change. And this is change and it's scary. And so it addresses some of those concerns that kids have at the end of the year. And if you talk to special ed teachers or even um or even regular ed teachers, the kids are a little nuts at the end of the year. And part of that is this anxiety over the change that summer is happening and what will next year be like. So that's what this book is about. All of my stories are actually true stories that have happened to my kids or that have happened to other kids um, that I know about. So they're all based on true stories and they're written in a structure of a social story. So in special education, a social story is a teaching tool to help a child understand their emotions and what steps to take to, to face a challenge. And these books are written in the very same way. So this book, again, will... will um, will help children deal with their fears about the end of the school year. That's so incredible. And I think, you know, um, the book that you wrote about transitioning and the, and the, uh, Emily, Emily D and the fearful first day, right. That is something I wish I had had for my son when he was younger, because he is, has a really difficult time with change and transitions. And he experiences a lot of anxiety at the beginning of a school year with a new teacher. And so it would manifest as, um, you know, he would feel physically sick. He would feel nauseated because like he, and he would try to explain it to me where he's like, I can't go to school. I'm sick. And that, you know, and I'd be like, okay, well, what's happening? How, you know, you don't have a fever. And he, and, and we would get to the point where he would say, you know, I'd be like, do you feel like you were on a roller coaster, you know, or do you feel sort of like, is that what the feeling is? And he's like, yeah, like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And then he would get worried about throwing up at school. So he didn't want to go about that. And I'm like, you're not actually going to throw up. I mean, it's possible he could have, (laughs) but we had to, we had to have a lot of conversations about like what anxiety feels like. And I think it's really sort of helped him become more in touch with his physical, the physical manifestations of anxiety. Right. And so I think that that is something that like, we aren't very good at (laughs) as either as neurodiverse or ADHD adults. Like I I feel like we have that conversation with a lot of um, guests about like how we kind of tamp down our intuition a lot of the time, because a lot of the things we think and a lot of the things that we do are, we're told they're wrong so much as children. And so we stop listening to our instincts. And I think that that is such a disservice. Like, I feel like it's so important to teach kids to listen to all the different sort of wisdom areas that are happening in their bodies. Right. Because little kids feel stress and anxiety, right? Like we don't think about that, but they do. Um, And particularly now after lockdowns and COVIDs and whatnot, the level of school anxiety and um, school refusal is just going through the roof, right? School feels like a scary place to kids right now. Um, and one of my books, George J and the Miserable Monday is about school anxiety and the fact that every Monday feels like a battle, um, for certain kids because they've made it through the week of school and then the weekend happens. And for young kids, that change can be, feel really dramatic. And that fear that school is not going to be like it was last week, that everything's going to be different is really, really hard. And and 
look as adults, Mondays can be hard for us, right? Like that's not just a kid problem, but giving kids the tools to talk about what those feelings are and, and respecting and owning the fact that those feelings are real teaches them about how to deal with it when they're older. Um, before they can turn to who knows what to try to deal with those feelings. And so I think that recognition that they can really feel these things and those feelings are real is so important. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that with Zoom, when they were doing Zoom schooling last year, like my son would just, as soon as he would get off Zoom, he would burst into tears, right? Because it was like, you're holding it together. And I, I saw the degree to which he was like working and it was like he was just holding his breath the whole time, right? Like really trying to concentrate, really trying to focus, really trying to do all these things where it's like the, the the sensory world was working against him. And he would just fall apart the minute he got off of Zoom. And then I was so excited for him to go back to the classroom. But like you said, like school, yeah, it doesn't feel like a safe place. And so I was picking my kids up last year. Um, and as soon as he would get in the car, he would just burst into tears. It was like the whole weight of the day would just... Um, you know, he would just unravel as soon as he got into a safe space. And I was sort of, you know, and, and so this year we have him in like, um, you know, what, uh, what's the word preventative therapy <laughs> where, where we've started getting him to see a therapist, uh, just, you know, we wanted to hit the ground running this year with making sure he had somebody to talk to, but also like his therapist was sort of like, what's wrong, what's wrong. Like there was a sense even with therapy because, uh, just, okay. I'm getting uh, tangled up. So basically we wanted to get him in a situation where he could normalize therapy, right. Where he could, where, where the idea of therapy was not like there has to be something seriously wrong with you in order to go to therapy, that therapy just exists as an outlet and that we needed to normalize like verbally processing things and talking about things with adults that aren't necessarily your parents, but like, you know, getting, feeling like there are places where you can talk about this stuff. And it doesn't, you know, or not like, that's the other thing. You, you don't have to like always come to therapy with some dramatic trauma event that you have to go over. Like we just wanted to have it available to him as, as a way of normalizing therapy in his life, as opposed to feeling like there, you know, therapy was something that you only did if there was something seriously wrong with you, which is, I think most people think of therapy that way, right? Like couples that you don't go to couples therapy unless you're on the brink of divorce and you don't go, you know, and, and I don't think I feel like that is a terrible way to look at therapy. So we have him doing that. And it's, I don't know what they're talking about. Like I, you know, he doesn't tell me anything. I don't really uh, pry, but like he is in such a better place just from having one hour every other week to like, I don't know what, like just to, to be in that space. Um, it, it has made such a tremendous difference in terms of his ability to like cope this year Look, I'm a big believer that preventive medicine is important and we do it for our physical health, but we need to do it for our emotional health too, right? My kids have been in and out of therapy since they could speak, I think. Um, and it becomes another grown-up that they can talk to and feel safe with and discuss their feelings and even, you know, the school psychologist at school, I asked my second grader, I'm like, well, you know, what did you guys talk about? And he's like, that's private. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Right. And so um, 
because I want them to be able to turn to therapy throughout their whole life. And if it's only something that you go to when something's on fire, it doesn't really work the same way. Yeah. Um, I know. Right. Yeah. And well, and the other thing was like the school counselors are so overwhelmed right now. I mean, last year, at the very end of the year, their teacher, who was really holding a lot of these kids together, <laughs> had to leave for a, a medical emergency. So she was gone for the last month of school. And uh, there were a lot of kids who just unraveled without her presence there. And one kid started biting other kids. And so like, I, I called the principal and I called the, the guidance counselor and was like, look, my son doesn't feel safe in the classroom. Like, what do we do? And, um, you know, and the, and the guidance counselors are so you know, they spend all of their time dealing with the extreme cases, the behavioral cases that like they don't have a lot of resources or, or time for the quiet kids who are in the corner holding it together uh, until they get home and are just sort of like, you know, even if you were to, even if the guidance counselor was to take my son into her office and ask him how he's doing, he probably would have been like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You know, cause he doesn't want to be disruptive because he's that kid. So like, I really, you know, it really sort of, felt like so much came to the fore last year in terms of like, yeah, um, how kids are dealing with these stresses that, you know, as grownups, we're not dealing with very well. So I really do hope that we're a lot of this, the way in which we're talking about mental health, the way we're talking about depression since the pandemic, like, uh, you know, being so much more open about it and, and, you know, being able to answer the question, how are you doing? And just being like, I'm not okay. <laughs> like, I feel like that, I feel like as adults, we've been able to normalize that a little more over the last year and a half. I'm hoping it really trickles down to kids. Well, and I, I hope that the resources that the schools are trying to funnel to mental health, stay the focus, right? Because that could be a huge benefit from all of this, that the resources are there, the social and emotional learning focus is there, that it's not just about learning algebra, um, that that would be a great perk. That would be a great positive thing to come out of all of this awfulness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put that on the put that on the bucket list. So. <laughs> um, this episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Magic Mind was created by James Bashara, a Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur who ended up in the ER with a heart condition brought on by the combination of stress and caffeine. He started researching natural alternatives, teamed up with scientists and medical professionals, and he created the Magic Mind drink and wrote the book Beyond Coffee. I personally really like the taste, and it's a nice little shot of energy to keep me focused throughout the day without any of that jittery, agitated feeling I get from too much coffee. Beyond just energy and focus, it has ingredients to help you stress less, reduce brain fog, and stay on task. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 20% off your order. And make sure to enter the code ADHD at checkout. Again, that's magicmind.co slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the show notes for 20% off your order. Okay, so then when you were just diagnosed, I guess you know, we've sort of talked about this, you know, here and there in this conversation, but like, are there some things in your past where you look back and you're like, the signs were there? Oh, I know what I want. You know, scrap that question. Because I feel like we've already talked about that. But I was curious, like, what was the reaction from your family when you came out and, you know, when you were diagnosed? 
So my husband looked at me like, yeah. of course, <laughs> and he laughed. Um, and we, my husband is very hyper rational. Like I call him a, a Vulcan because he is as anti opposite ADHD as a human being could possibly be. And, and sometimes I feel like we live in, in like different universes that are just overlapping because the way we see, he's like, you and the boys are over there and I'm over here. And he's like, sometimes I just stop and I watch you guys. And he's like, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. And in my mind, it all feels perfectly normal. Um, but so he was very supportive and, um, and the kids loved it. Like they high-fived me. And it felt like we had this special club. Um, and I'm not sure my mom fully believed it because I was a kid in the 70s and they diagnosed some boys with ADHD, but goodness me, they would never diagnose a girl with ADHD. And I had done well academically and I had done well professionally. And I don't think she saw the extent of the struggle um, because again, it manifests itself differently in girls than it does in boys. Um, and particularly in my case, but I live in a community where we have a very strong group of special education parents who lean on each other. And I talked to them about it and everybody was really supportive and was able to then um you know, relate their own experiences. And I think having that support network is huge. The place where it's interesting to me where I get the greatest level of pushback is on social media. And social media is not something I'm very good at or did before becoming an author. And whenever I write something positive, about my ADHD experiences um, or positive about neurodiversity, I'm floored by the number of trolls that come out of the woodwork and feel like because my experience overall has been good, why I look at kind of the gifts that it has given me, um, that it diminishes their experience. Um, and that to me is the hard part, right? That that I look at my life and my life comes from a place of privilege and I've been able to get my kids all this therapy and do all of these things um, that my positive outlook um, is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's the place that's a bit interesting. Um, but otherwise it's been nothing but good. Um, for me, it explained my internally, it explained it's like, this is why I couldn't read books, right? Like I wrote a dissertation and I still couldn't read books. Um, and uh, as soon as somebody came up with a book on tape, that was like my, the, the greatest thing anybody could have invented. And I remember listening um, to War and Peace in the car doing like a drive and being like, this is what literature is. Finally, like I had that like aha moment. And this is why people like to read because I could never digest it in any other way before that. And I walk around the house and I constantly have an earbud in my ear listening to a book, like nonstop because it opened this door to me 
um, audiobooks and and understanding that that is because of my ADHD. It like made perfect sense because for the longest time I couldn't understand why I couldn't really read the way other people would sit there and read. Um, I know I totally digressed from the question. Yeah. No, but you brought up an interesting point, which I think was has been such a huge mental transformation for me since my diagnosis, which was how, you know, recognizing how much I love to learn and how I've always been like that. You know, I would always sort of joke about the fact that like, if I could just go to school and, and like learn things, but never have to take tests or be graded, <laughs> I would be in school forever. Like all I do is take courses and certifications and yeah, like I'm listening you know, I listen to, you know, multiple books a week, but it'll take me six months to read a book. And I've just given up on reading books now, unless I have absolutely no choice. But like, you know, this idea that like, I never thought about how much I was obsessed with learning because I had such this negative um, relationship with academia. And so it was like such a huge shift for me in terms of my self-esteem to real, to really say to myself, like my experience with academia is in no way a reflection of my intellect. And like, I had to like give myself that permission because I didn't realize how much weight I was carrying around believing that I was dumb, you know, even though there was all this overwhelming, uh, you know, evidence to the contrary. And I think that was really what brought me to the diagnosis was my therapist saying like, look at all that you do and think and talk about and, you know, and yet at the end of the day, you think so poorly of yourself. And so I get like, you know, and, and I've had people reach out to me too, and have said like, everybody on your podcast is so accomplished and so wonderful and doing all these things. Like, where are the real ADHD people who are struggling? And I'm like, no, that's the point. Like the struggle is behind the scenes, right? Like that is what I think is so important to talk about when we, you know, when it comes to how lonely we feel with this, with, undiagnosed neurodivergencies, which is just like so many of us really are, you know, do put out this, this identity of being very like, um, high performing and, and, um, intellectual, but like, there's just so much struggle and work behind the scenes that nobody is seeing and that you can't talk about and you don't know how to process or what to do with. And, um, yeah, I don't I don't remember what I was talking about either. <laughs> well, and part of that is like I blame society, right? Like the expectation that we're all the same and we come out of an educational system that is designed for a cookie-cutter education, that's just bogus, right? And so um there are plenty of things I am terrible at, as we said, spelling. And to this day, I still can't spell. And even with spell checker, I have to change what I'm writing because even with spell checker, I can't figure out how to spell a word. Um, There are things I'm terrible at, but those are not the things that I choose to focus on, right? Like I'm going to focus on the things that I do well. I'm creative. I write books. Like I do these things that that make me happy as a person and and whether I'm neurodiverse or not, like that's my choice to look at the world through that lens. 
And that is not a neurodiverse, neurotypical issue. There are plenty of neurotypical people who are unhappy with their lives and unhappy with their success. That is the way you look at the world. Um, but I do think the reason why so many of us have struggled and have had issues with our self-esteem and our self-confidence is because our education system does not value the things that we can bring to the table and does not allow us to show them those things, right? Um, the IQ tests that are given to kids are not designed for kids with ADHD, right? They are designed for neurotypical kids. And so we are judging our kids based on a criteria for a different kind of brain. That's crazy. That would be like giving, you know, looking at a cat and being like, well, why aren't you functioning like a dog? You're a failure as a cat. Like, that's not okay. So those are the things that I think we should be outraged about. Those are the things where I feel like it's time to change the way society views us. And in order to do that, the positivity has to come from us. We're the ones who have to say, no, we're worth it. We're just as good. We're just as smart. In fact, there are places that we're even smarter. So then society can start looking at us and being like, oh yeah, you're right. You are just as good as you say you are. Mm -hmm. We should change the education system to be able to start recognizing the value you bring to the table. It's not to positivity just to be positive. We're not, you and I are not talking about ADHD and women and the success women have to make ourselves feel good. We're making this message to everybody so that people start seeing these gifts. Right. Yeah. Oh, so beautifully said. I uh, really appreciate that because, you know, I think, I think you, you do, when we start talking about the gifts of ADHD. And, you know, I talk a lot about the problem, the problems around terms like ADHD being a superpower and, you know, how there is a lot of sense that like you, you know, when you start talking about it in this aggressively positive light, you really are brushing aside so much of the inherent privileges that, you know, start to um, you start to see the cracks in the system in terms of privilege and what children, you know, especially children of color who are treated very differently. And then you think of women of color who are treated even more different. Like you think about all the ways in which we are treated in society and how, um, you know, uh, how difficult it is to, to have accommodations um, based on who you are and where you're growing up and where you're living. And um, I think so much of the, you know, so so much of changing the face of, of what this looks like and how we are treated is, is being able to advocate for ourselves, right? And being able to really understand deep down, there's nothing wrong with me. If something, if I can't, you know, like I love the cat dog analogy, right? It's like, if I can't do this, it's not because I'm a failure. It's because I haven't, we haven't, we don't have what I need to be successful. And I think, um, you know, this, the ability to advocate comes from an understanding of yourself and also a certain level of like confidence in, in order to, you know, bring that to the table, bring that advocacy to the table and say, no, I'm not going to just sit by and let you, you know, tell me I'm stupid or, you know, uh, tell me I can't do the thing. But I also, but then at the same time, the ability to advocate 
you, you need a certain level of privilege to even get to that point. And so, it's, you know, then we end up in this like hamster wheel of like, yes, society needs to change and we need to change it. But that's a tall order for, for a lot of members of our society. And um, I guess, I, yeah, I guess my point is like, you know, advocacy on all levels is so important and having these conversations is so important and recognizing, um, recognizing privilege, but also, like you said, like having those conversations and acknowledging it, but at the same time, like, what can I do with my privilege? What can I do? Can I, can I help other people? Can I talk about this? Can I open up conversations? Can I make changes in schools? I don't know. Like, let's try, you know, a lot of that as opposed to just being like every man for himself, (laughs) um, take what I can and, and run with it. And if you can't, if you're not doing as well as me, sucks to be you, which I think is a distinctly American, um, (laughs) (laughs) viewpoint as somebody who grew up in another country and moved here, you know, that, that, that I feel like is a very distinctly American mindset of like, well, everybody succeeds on their own. And, you know, if anything smacks of socialism, we're going to, we're going to shut it down, but that's a whole other tirade. (laughs) Yes. The, the myth of Horatio Algier continues on, um, that we all start with the level playing field and we don't, um, but just the fact that we talk about neurodiversity is such a change from 10 years ago, right? Like the, the, it was coined in the 90s, but it hasn't really caught on. Um, and this idea that people are starting to say that, that brain differences are okay, that they're biologically um, significant and have been around for so long for good reasons. Um, you see in kind of the autism rights movement, this pushback against some of what Autism Speaks has been talking about in terms of um, in terms of finding a cure for autism, this idea that autistic individuals say, you don't really get the right to cure me, right? Can you imagine if we tried to cure Michelangelo, right? Like these are these notions are new and I think it will take time for society to catch on, but at least we're talking about them. At least we're raising them. At least we're saying, you know, these differences are okay. They're part of society. They're part of humanity. They're, they're biologically normal to have our brain differences as, as much as having a skin color difference or a height difference, right? That, that, that these conversations are happening in and of themselves, I think is, is what's going to start shifting society. Uh, so that's a good segue to my, my question. I like to ask about renaming ADHD because, you know, we talked about neurodiversity and the, the Venn diagram. So if you could rename it to something a little less confusing and problematic for so many of us, would you, would you call it something else? I would take away the, the, the kind of the disorder piece, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really a negative framing. I struggle with what to call it. I do believe kind of putting in some concept of a spectrum is really important because we are not one size fits all. My ADHD experience looks different from your ADHD experience. And 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 having that that understanding that it manifests itself differently in everybody, I think legitimizes everybody's own experience. So I think that's an important piece to it. When I talk about it with my kids, it's all positive. 
right? Like we don't use, they don't know what it stands for. I mean, at some point they'll Google it and they'll figure out that I've been lying to them this whole time. <laughs> but, um, but I taught, you know, the H for them is high speed and the A is about being accelerated. And it's all about this idea that their brains go so fast and their problems stem from the fact that they haven't figured out how to work them yet. They don't know how to downshift. And part of learning about how to deal with ADHD is figuring out what tools for you allow you to then slow down, control your brain, and then step on the gas when you want to, right? And I have boys, so the car analogy works. And I'm being super uh, sexist and stereotypical there, but whatever, it's working for my kids. And, um, and so for me, that the, the, the notion of a spectrum is the most important piece that we're missing right now. Yeah. I love that. I know I have these moments with my son where he'll say things like, yeah, my brain was moving really fast and my hand couldn't catch up. And so I like, I saw that there were all these words missing in the paragraph and that's, but you know, that's just how I am. And I just love that. Like there's this just utter lack of judgment when he has those moments where he's like, yeah, this is how I am as opposed to you know, oh, what's wrong with me? I can't do the thing, right? Which I I just like, those are those moments where I'm like, okay, you're doing something right because he's looking at these things as like, you know, like he said, you're overthinking it, mom. <laughs> it's like, this is just, it is what it is. And he's having these incredible thoughts. Yeah. And so what if his hand can't keep up just yet, right? Like the fact that those incredible thoughts exist, that's the gift, right? right? We need to come up with the technology that's going to allow him to speak fast enough to be able to get those words transcribed so his ideas stay, right? Like it's not his hand that's the problem, right? It's not his brain that's the problem. It's the connectivity between the two of them that he needs to figure out. Right, yeah, it always comes back to that. Like, what do you need to help you succeed? Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. I, I was so excited to talk to you about so many of these things. So thank you. Um, thank you for having me. This is this, every time I talk to another woman who's been diagnosed, kind of when I've been diagnosed, it's just so refreshing because despite the fact that it manifests itself differently in all of us, we have so many shared experiences. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.